This episode is sponsored by Safety, a violence prevention app that could save your life. Now, I want to be very clear that no app is a silver bullet and in a violent situation, you might freeze, your nervous system might take over, or you might really love your attacker and not feel like you could push a panic button. There are many types of responses that you might have when experiencing violence. However, you want to have the option to be able to panic if you need to. And what do I mean by that? So the Safety app has a panic button that you can press and it will immediately start taking photos of your selfie camera and your back camera, collect your GPS and audio and send that data to three emergency contacts. To download the Safety app onto your phone is completely free if you are just using the panic button and you can try out some of their other features for 28 days as well. It's on Apple and Android and the links to do so are in the show notes for this podcast episode. Once again, I want to say a big thank you to our friends at Safety. Hello, this is the Fight Back Podcast hosted by exercise scientist Georgia Berry. Here, you'll find a series of honest conversations about martial arts and mental health. My guests and I explore the statement that every martial artist has heard. Martial arts saved me. How and why do combat sports save people? Listen to find out. Hello everyone, welcome to the Fight Back podcast. Today I'm doing something a little bit different. I'm returning to the model from the very beginning of the podcast of doing some standalone episodes. And the reason I wanted to do this today is because some of the things that we were speaking about in the last episode, the episode with Danielle about neuroplasticity, I thought was super interesting and probably warranted a deeper dive conversation about how we can utilize mistakes as martial artists, as martial arts teachers, and also teachers in the trauma-informed martial arts space. So today is going to be all about making mistakes, how we can reframe making mistakes from a negative into a positive and some of the therapeutic benefits to making mistakes in class, in martial arts classes, as well as growth mindset, what that means and how we can apply it in our practice. So I want to start out by thinking about a poster that is on the wall in the clinic that I teach in, and it says, mistakes are proof that you are trying. I love this. I think it's a wonderful poster to have, but I think it only scratches the surface. And what I mean by that is, yes, making mistakes is proof that you are trying, but making mistakes is not just the result of the fact that you're giving it a go. It's also totally necessary in order for us to be able to learn new things. So I want to start out today's episode by framing what learning is, and then we can talk about how making mistakes can help improve learning. So in the sports science world, we really distinguish between learning and performance. So performance is kind of like, you know, the movie Curly Sue? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. There's a little girl 
and she isn't able to go to school because she's a part of this scheme that her dad's been working on and to prove to this group of board members that she's smart and that, like, she's doing really well with homeschooling despite everything, uh, she can spell the word asphyxiate. And she does that, beautiful. And then the love interest, I think it is, of the... The dad asked the little girl, well, can you spell cat? And the little girl cannot, right, because she hasn't gone through the process of learning to spell, although most of spelling is actually rote learning. So perhaps that's not the best example. But (laughs) essentially, if you practice something enough in a fixed period of time, you can generate a performance without actually causing learning to happen in your brain. So in martial arts, we can relate that to perhaps spending an entire hour learning one technique, perhaps in, say, a sport like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you spend an hour learning this really complicated berambolo entry into, like, the back saddle, I don't know, I'm kind of using words that are that are beyond my level of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. But let's say you spend a really fixed period of time just learning all the details to this one technique and there's a coach who's standing over you and they're correcting every little thing that you do wrong and at the end of it they record a video and it's of you doing the technique quote-unquote perfectly. Does that mean that you're going to be able to do that technique in a live role against a resisting opponent or actively use this effectively as part of your arsenal? Maybe uh, if you're a super learner or some other variable, but more likely is that in two weeks when you return to doing that technique, you can't remember what it is. And we're all familiar with this of getting to a position in a sport and we go, I know what I'm supposed to do here. I remember that we learned this, right? That's even the thing you hear in our head. We learned this, but I can't do it now. Well, that actually means you didn't learn anything. Uh, That means you performed the movement, but learning hasn't really taken place to the extent that we would want it to have in order to be able to say you learned the thing. What we need to happen in order for learning to have occurred is Five things, actually. So the first thing is improvement. We want to see that you got better at doing the thing from start to finish. Now, that is the thing in common that we will see with learning and performance. Then they deviate a little bit. So the next thing that we look for is consistency. So can you perform the repetition well over and over again? So it's not just that you did it right once. In a session, did you do it right 10 times, 20 times? The next thing is stability. So if we change the situation a little bit, um, can you still do the same technique again? So if it's an outdoor sport, for example, and it's a really windy day, can you still do the skill? If there is an opponent versus no opponent, can you still do the skill? Things like that. The next thing is persistence. So if I come back in two weeks, can I still do the skill? And that is the one that I think tends to drop off for a lot of people and that we forget in this whole quest for learning new things is that it's not just about doing it today. It's about can you do it in two months and 
six months and a year from now, if you're doing something where you possibly don't revisit things for a year from the perspective of the coach showing you the movement again. Okay. And then the last thing is adaptability. So can you slightly change the technique in order to fill a different function? So you know how to do an armbar, but do you know how to do an armbar if the opponent does this or if the opponent does that? Or can you change your posture slightly, but the mechanism is still the same? So is it adaptable, the technique that you've now learned? So learning and performance are different. And I think most people, if you said that to them, would go, yeah, I, I, I get that. But hopefully that gives you a bit of a more concrete uh, understanding of what learning really is. And the next thing I'm going to tell you is really, really exciting, which is that if learning is the thing that you're after in your martial arts journey, and we'll come back to why I put if in there later in this episode, if learning is what you are after, then mistakes are critical. This is mind-blowing and amazing to think about. I will refer everyone to a podcast called the Huberman Lab Podcast. It's a fantastic resource by a Stanford neuroscience professor called Andrew Huberman, and he breaks this down really, 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 really well. Um, All his content's fantastic, but particularly episode seven touches on this concept of neuroplasticity, what it is and how we can get it. But I'll summarize it here and I'm going to use lots of martial arts examples for what this means for us as martial artists, martial arts teachers and people in the trauma-informed martial arts space. So when we are kids, our brain is by default incredibly plastic. What that means is we can passively learn new information. So kids just seem to be able to pick up new languages. They can, you know, learn multiple languages at once. They're like little sponges of knowledge. And that's because their brains are full of neurochemicals and neurotransmitters that facilitate this kind of rapid learning. It makes it difficult for them in other areas, particularly in terms of specializing and choosing what they do and don't want to focus on. So the neuroplasticity all the time is not necessarily fully advantageous, but for adults to learn new things, the whole can't teach an old, can't teach an old dog new tricks, we now know is false. So you can in basically engage neuroplasticity across all ages. But after you reach 25 or thereabouts, you know, give or take, there's a tapering off of the amount of plasticity in your brain and it becomes more difficult to learn new things. So for kids, it's really easy for them to learn new things. For adults, it's more difficult to learn new things, but not impossible. And that's one of the things we talk a lot about when we talk about trauma recovery. When we talk about PTSD and we talk to clients, it's very popular now and for a good reason, because it's amazing that our brain is plastic. So we always say, you know, just because you're experiencing that your nervous system is wired in this way at the moment to be hypervigilant to danger, it will not always be that way. And you can change your brain because your brain has the capacity to be plastic, to change. It's an oversimplification, though, to just say the brain is plastic, the brain changes. 
because the brain also wants to stay the same. It's created a pattern that it thinks is most beneficial for you. Your brain and your body are always trying to look after you. And that's why we constantly come back and say, thanks, brain. This is what I would like to do instead. It's just doing its best, really. Okay, so as adults, if we want to engage neuroplasticity, we need to do a few different things, basically. And the thing around learning that was very popular for a long time was like the 10,000 hours rule. You need 10,000 hours of practicing a skill in order to become an expert or a master at that. And then that has been applied to lots of different things, you know, from learning a sporting skill to music, to languages, to things like learning new thought patterns, you know, um, learning to say, think things like should less often or toxic positivity changes or, um, you know, black and white thinking, all or nothing thinking, doomsday thinking, all these kind of things can be changed through practice. Then we started thinking, okay, well, what about deliberate practice then? You don't need 10,000 hours if you're doing deliberate practice, which means you're really concentrating, you're not multitasking, you know, because for adults, We can't do this passive learning thing that kids can do. Kids can multitask and just passively be exposed to things and learn them. As adults, that's much more difficult. So you need focused attention. So that's where we started to talk about deliberate practice. And now we know that the actual key to deliberate practice is to make errors in that deliberate practice. So what that does is send signals to the brain that something is wrong. So if you make an error, your brain goes, oh, oh, what was that? That didn't feel right. Like I was trying to seek a certain outcome. You know, I was trying to punch someone and they blocked that punch. Well, how come they blocked that punch? My, In my mind, my fist was going to travel from my chin to their chin and that was the end of story. Brain goes, well, why didn't that happen? Ah, maybe I telegraphed it, right? Maybe I lifted my hand first, then punched them. That was why they were able to block that technique. Or maybe I needed to set it up within a set of combinations or da-da-da-da-da, whatever it might be for you could be different. And your brain going through this process of thinking, okay, well, what did I do wrong? What needs to be different next time is incredibly powerful, because it's a strong signal that says to the brain, something's wrong, we need to do something differently. And the brain, I like to imagine, goes, all right, if this is a problem, let's solve it. Let's send in neurotransmitters, neurochemicals that are going to make it easier for us to unwire the connections that we don't want if you're doing this by habit and rewire new connections, therefore causing learning, right? The effect of learning in the brain isn't growing new neurons and neural pathways can be to an extent, but I think for the most part, it's uncoupling and recoupling of wires in different combinations is the way that I like to think about it anyway. Happy to be wrong on something like that because I think neuroscience is incredibly complicated. But for our purposes, when you make a mistake, you signal to the brain, brain, we need to change something. And then the brain creates the environment to allow for change. At that point, you haven't caused learning, right? Now you need repetitions. You want to keep making repetitions and keep making some errors within those repetitions until eventually 
your brain has now performed this enough times that new neurons wire together, wire together, fire together, right? This is amazing for so many reasons. The first one is that myself included, we all get super down on ourselves when we make mistakes. A lot of my clients get down on themselves when they make mistakes. I'm sure a lot of your students get down on themselves when they make mistakes, right? We all want to come to class and have everything go perfectly. But if that happened every class, it's not just that it's unrealistic, right? And um, the example that a lot of coaches will give is, you know, you might be able to beat everyone in our club, but at a competition or, you know, on the street, someone might be bigger and stronger than you. So you always want to be tested. Yeah, that's true. But also when you make mistakes, you change the chemical structure of your brain, the chemicals present in your brain that make it easier to learn. You literally cause learning. It's incredible. So that reframe just on its own is super powerful. But then the reason why I got so excited about this last week when I was talking to Danielle is that the effect of these neurochemicals isn't just uh, specific to the task that they were released in response to. The general distinction between a change in our body that's caused by a chemical or a hormone as opposed to the nervous system is that hormones are slower, they're slower to release and then slower to leave, so they're long-lasting, And they are not tissue specific. So they tend to spread everywhere, right? What that means for us is that after you've done this so-called bout of learning, right, you made a heap of errors in, say, boxing, right? You couldn't work out why your jab didn't feel quite right. And every time that it didn't feel quite right, you got a little bit frustrated, but you kept going and you kept practicing. Well, after that session, if you then sat down and tried to practice learning the piano, your brain is already primed to make new connections and it's going to be easier for you to engage in learning. That's insane from the perspective of thinking about combining martial art with therapy at the same time or very close together. Could be do 30 minutes to an hour of boxing and then immediately after see a psychologist to you know, talk through some of your trauma or to use CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, to talk about some reason why you're in therapy, to essentially reprogram some more emotional uh, responses that you have that you want to work on, right? Could be should statements, could be black or white thinking, could be negativity, could be depression, could be anxiety, could be eating disorder, whatever, the brain is plastic now. And so when you go into that session, possibly nobody's done direct research on this. So I'm just hypothesizing, but possibly you get better outcomes than if you just went to the therapy without doing the boxing beforehand, or like Danielle was doing, you might do them interchangeably. So you're doing some boxing, making some errors, causing neuroplasticity, then talking about the problem or your day or or whatever it might be, and then going back to doing boxing. So it's interspaced in between. That has crazy implications, right? It means that psychologists could just have pads in their clinic and then they could bring them out during the session for somebody to hit if they have the requisite 
pad holding experience, which wouldn't take that much to develop, right? It, the, the possibilities here are incredible, right? Making errors leads to increased neuroplasticity, which could lead to better clinical outcomes for patients, that's crazy, okay? It also leads to better learning outcomes for you as a martial artist. Amazing, right? You could also use this to do something like, say, straight after doing your martial arts class, use an app like uh, there's one called NeuroCycle, which is really good for going through a 20-minute or so process of mind mapping your thoughts and reprogramming toxic thoughts or what you identify or self-identify as being toxic thoughts or thought patterns that you want to change, you could do that immediately after this bout of learning. Plus, it's not like learning the piano or learning a language where you're quite static, like there's no changes to your physiology in terms of like a really big heart rate increase or increased blood flow and all of these things that also create extra endorphins, right? So who knows what the impact of learning plus endorphins would be because it means that your brain is kind of in a state to feel better and possibly that means the pain of thinking about these toxic thoughts might be less Again, these are all things that I'm hypothesizing, but like imagine we use boxing or some other martial art, jujitsu, whatever, it doesn't matter, in combination with therapy clinically, or you can just do that on your own totally for free, apart from paying to go to your martial arts class, right? Um, But go to a martial arts class and then do some journaling, right? Go to a martial arts class and then use an app like NeuroCycle, something like that to change the way that you think. It's, it's it's amazing. I hope that I'm really driving home for everyone by doing this extended episode, just how incredible that I, I really think this is. And I think it possibly taps into one of the mechanisms by which martial arts and combat sports therapies might work. We have lots of anecdotes about how these therapies do work, but we don't really have any knowledge of causation Um, And we don't have, we have very, very few studies looking at martial arts as clinical interventions for mental health disorders. And and so thinking about this as a kind of mechanism just gets me so excited. Like it, it hasn't even been researched yet. So it could be premature that I'm getting excited about it. But I also think the, the bar for, or the risk, the risk here is quite low right? At the end of the day, you spend some time doing exercise, meeting new people, learning a new skill, great. And then you spend some time trying to do some journaling or speaking to a psychologist. Also great. You know, the fact that they might not necessarily be as synergistic, you know, they might not work together as well as I'm imagining that they do. is probably not going to be detrimental. You know, it's probably not going to be a negative effect. At the very least, it'll be neutral. So it's worth trying. Like it's, it's crazy. It's amazing. So you can really think next time you go to your martial arts class, I'm going to try and make errors. Or every time you make an error, I'm getting neuroplasticity. That is amazing, right? Just that alone is going to change the way that you experience your training so much from being a negative on a day where you felt like you, quote unquote, couldn't do anything to a positive on a day where, you know, 
you did the exact same thing, but your mindset was a little bit different. In in terms of the mechanisms that might be underlying um, martial arts and combat sports as therapeutic tools, I think this neuroplasticity piece could be one part of the tool. And keep in mind, I'm not saying like, oh, that's why what we do works, right? I don't do any talk therapy in my sessions. So what might be happening there? Well, we can think about endorphins from exercise. So certainly there's a lot of research looking at exercise at a fairly high intensity um, to reduce the symptoms of depression, uh, strength training exercise, again, at a fairly high intensity of about 80%, one repetition maximum. So whatever the weight that you could lift once, the maximum amount of weight you could lift, lifting 80% of that for multiple repetitions with rests in between, which is quite a high intensity, has been shown to have positive effects on PTSD, independent of that person ever seeking talk therapy um, in areas like their sleep and alcoholism and other areas related to PTSD. So just the exercise piece on its own, we know is incredibly therapeutic, perhaps, you know, pairing uh like something like boxing with talk therapy has a somatic release element where you're triggering kind of a fight or flight response. You're triggering the sympathetic nervous system by talking about things that are distressing. And then the person hits something so that they get that kind of fight release. It's like how animals shake after something traumatic happens to them or just for no reason sometimes it seems like they're physically discharging the emotion from their body and boxing might do that. It might work from a somatic perspective. Um, Boxing in particular and kickboxing are quite bilateral, so they use both sides of the body rhythmically, left, right, left, right, and bilateral stimulation like this, bilateral meaning both sides, uh, and in this case we talked about the brain, bilateral stimulation in, in imaginary brackets of the brain, Uh, is thought to be incredibly beneficial in helping people, you know, engage their whole brain, engage parts of the brain that they maybe don't. Um, And it's certainly an important part of EMDR, which we briefly mentioned in the last episode, eye movement, desensitization and and remapping, I think. Uh, I'm going to get somebody in to talk about EMDR and bilateral stimulation in more detail because it certainly warrants a whole episode on its own. But those are just some ideas for some of the ways that combat sports might be mechanistically, right, for some ideas that the mechanisms by which combat sports and martial arts might be therapeutic tools. We just, we just don't know. And this, this idea about neuroplasticity is just exciting to me as being like a, a possible additional thing that, you know, if it is true or not, you know, you might think about ways that you can integrate more into your practice, which I suppose brings me to the point of thinking about like the, well, so what aspect of me talking at you. So as a student, let's think about this. You can... Like I said, seek to make errors in class. Okay, you can make errors and then change the way that you think about them and want to keep making errors because you know that it's causing learning. 
right? Another thing that you can do in order to improve your learning, if that's what um, listening to this podcast, you know, you think about most is going to be most relevant to you is just you on a personal level. You can think about the involvement of balance of the vestibular system, which is in your ear, in learning. So again, I would refer you to the Huberman podcast to learn more about this. But when you tip your head side to side, you know, like a puppy dog being like, when am I having dinner? When's Dindin's? Or nod your head yes or no, or shake your head left and right. That causes basically these little marbles in your ear to roll around and that triggers neuroplasticity as well. That's a super simplification. Again, I refer you to the Huberman podcast if you want to hear more details about how that works from a neuroscience perspective. But for our conversation today, know that when you disrupt your balance, you cause brain states that preference neuroplasticity. That only works for novel disruptions to balance. It's not actually a disruption to balance if you um, go skateboarding and you've always skateboarded, right? It doesn't make you feel like you're about to fall over. Or if you go surfing and you've always surfed. Once you've got proficiency in a skill, the fact that you're doing it on one leg or whatever, it's involving balance, is no longer challenging to your vestibular system, to your balance system, and therefore won't cause the same changes in neuroplasticity. This really pricked my ears up because when I teach kickboxing, I always say this, the first few weeks are just about not falling over. And so we talk a lot about trying to practice interoception, trying to notice what is happening in your body. And that's a key component of the program that I run at the very least is noticing, can you feel your glutes when you kick? Can you feel your hip flexors stretch when you kick? You know, what's happening in your legs? Can you feel the floor? All these things. Well, there's not that much time spent during a kick. Maybe a kick lasts two seconds and you need all of that time focusing on your balance in the beginning. Again, we often think about this as a negative thing, right? We're often thinking, you know, I just, all I can think about is my balance. I don't have balance yet. My balance sucks. If your balance sucks, you have way more capacity to introduce novelty or new things that you haven't done before in balance into your learning practice, which is going to supercharge your neuroplasticity and your brain's ability to learn. Yay, right? So if you start out kickboxing and every time you kick, you're like wobbling and your head's rocking side to side, right? Your whole torso tips over, kind of doing it if you're watching the video or if you're listening to the audio, then That's a good thing, right? We see it as a bad thing. It's like making a mistake but supercharged because you're making a balance mistake. Balance mistakes should be the number one priority for kinds of mistakes to try and make. They're awesome for triggering neuroplasticity, okay? So as for you as an individual, think about how can I make mistakes? How can I be happy about making mistakes? And how can I make mistakes with my balance? Conversely, if you're a teacher... You can think about um, encouraging mistake-making with your students. You can think about not praising students for winning and losing. Uh, We're going to talk about that in just a bit. 
you can incorporate challenging balance activities that are different to what you would normally do. So if you're teaching a kickboxing class and everyone's been kickboxing for five years, while doing head kicks is not going to challenge their balance. Um, So you need to think about different ways of maybe standing on one leg, which are going to have also cool adaptations in terms of gluteus medius, which is a muscle that is in your glutes, which helps prevent um, too much swaying of the pelvis from side to side and essentially keeps you upright when you walk and other times. And muscles of the ankle are going to get built up. So maybe you can invent some kind of a um, single leg drill that's going to challenge balance but doesn't resemble kickboxing too much because then it's going to be a, a motor pattern that everybody already knows. Maybe like back kicks or something like that are quite unfamiliar to everyone. So that's a cool thing to practice. Or side kicks if you're in kickboxing, which are quite common in karate, but I've never seen anyone do a side kick in kickboxing, something like that, right? And you can think about your sport, um, your martial art, and have a think about just any balance activity that's not already well rehearsed in your sport. So for Brazilian jiu-jitsu, for example, Uh, doing shoulder rolls and backwards rolls and forwards rolls are great for the balance system in the beginning because they really take the head on a journey through space, right? That tipping left, right, up, down, where the head goes all kinds of which ways when you're rolling and somersaulting. But once you've done it a lot of times, you know, pretty much once you're a blue belt, that's no longer going to be a challenge for anyone's balance system. And so can you think about new ways to challenge everyone? Like maybe you can do barambolo rolls if if no one's ever done that before. That's initially going to be a good stimulus. After a while, you've got to think of a new thing. Maybe then you would start doing kicks standing on one leg and that's going to cause everyone to wobble around quite a bit. Or maybe you think about doing cartwheels if you guys don't already do cartwheels or those are just some ideas. Uh, I would love to hear other ideas that people have for drills that they incorporated to um, challenge their students' balance in class. So as a teacher, you can really encourage the making of errors. You can be less scared to put things into your class plan that you know students are going to make mistakes with you know don't think I need to make it so that everyone's having wins all the time that things are really easy all the time these little moments of frustration where you can't quite do anything are very powerful Um, and so having some of those in your class is something that could be very beneficial so those are some ideas now I said I was going to talk about this thing called growth mindset And this has even more tools that we can use as individuals and as teachers to shift the way that we think about making mistakes. So Carol Dweck was a researcher who in 1988 actually first published work showing that when you look at kids, the ones who do really well, the ones who pick up new skills um, and end up succeeding in life have this thing called a growth mindset. And those who typically don't have this thing called a fixed mindset. So the growth mindset is characterized by a desire to learn, right? You're always thinking about how can I get better? You typically embrace challenges. You persist after there's been a setback. You see efforts 
as being a good thing. You see putting in effort as the path to mastery. You learn from criticism and you find lessons and inspiration from the success of others. Those are all the characteristics of someone with a growth mindset. Someone with a fixed mindset is motivated by the desire to look smart or to look good at whatever they're doing, if it's, say, like a sport or something like that, right? They are trying to prove that they are good. So they avoid challenges because, you know, if they are challenged, then they don't want to have to lose, right? They're totally averse to losing at any point. So they'll tend to either pick pick out opponents who are way, way, way worse than them that they can know that they can definitely be or way, way, way better than them so they already have an out when they lose. You know, like I'm a white belt and like he's a black belt so like there's no way that I was ever going to beat them but like another white belt or a brand new white belt maybe if, if you know, whatever, but um, or someone way smaller than them. But anyone who might be of a similar skill set to them that's like, no, 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 like we we can't because I'm going to get found out here. They're going to give up easily. They see effort as either pointless because they don't think that effort leads to anything or as a negative, as in they see people who are putting in effort as people who have to try and therefore aren't gifted and are therefore worthless, you know, basically. They ignore useful feedback and they feel threatened by the success of others. If someone else is doing well, that means I'm not doing well. Those, those are kind of the characteristics of what, what Carol found as being growth mindset and fixed mindset. And when we come back to this concept of neuroplasticity, it's really cool to learn that the subsequent studies that have been done since 1988 have looked at whether or not you can foster a growth mindset in people with a fixed mindset. And it turns out that you absolutely can. And this is a reason why there's some people who really dislike the motto of the jujitsu brand Hyperfly, which is you can't teach heart. Well, actually, the research shows that you can teach heart. You can teach someone to have a growth mindset when they have a fixed mindset. And here's how you do it, (laughs) basically. So the first thing that you want to do is notice where you have fixed mindset habits. You might not have them across the board. It's not so black and white as people are either growth mindset or fixed mindset. So, for example, I definitely believe in having a growth mindset. Like, I I don't feel embarrassed to do things wrong. I don't feel embarrassed to make mistakes. I love getting feedback. Um, but do I love the feeling of not being in flow, of not performing well, Do I love putting in effort? Maybe not all the time. Uh, And someone else might be the other way. Like they like putting in effort, but they don't want anyone to see them doing it. There's lots of nuances there. And I would direct people to go to Carol's website, which I'll put in the show notes. And you can do a quiz to see kind of where your, your gaps are, where potentially your mindset is a bit more fixed and then where it is growth as well. And we can celebrate that. But where there's a fixed mindset, we want to see if we can flip some of your internal dialogue as well as some of your language. 
So people who know me might notice this, but whenever someone says, I can't do X, I will always be like, yet, yet. You can't do that yet. And yet is the key word in changing fixed mindset to growth mindset, both in your internal dialogue with the thoughts that you think in your brain, right? You make a mistake in class, you're like, oh, I'm so stupid. Oh, I'm trying. I can't do it yet, but that's okay. I'm going to get there. Those are the kind of dialogue changes you want to have. And extra important is once you say them out loud because that affects other people's mindsets and then their mindsets are going to rub off back on you. You want everyone around you to have a growth mindset. You're going to be the average of the five people you spend the most time hanging around. So if the five people you hang around with have a growth mindset, guess what? You're probably going to have a growth mindset. So really paying attention to the language that you use and noticing whether you're being growth mindset or fixed mindset is also really important. The other things that you can do are set process-based goals instead of outcome-based goals. And this is maybe something that a lot of people have heard about. Um, You know, don't set the goal of to win the competition, set the goal of to do this technique, or even set the goal of, you know, I'm going to try my best. These things sound cliched and talked about to death, but if you base success on whether you did or didn't win or did or didn't, you know, get more taps than the other person in roles or did or didn't feel like you were getting the most points inspiring, whatever winning inspiring even means, um, then you're going to think that you lost. And that's going to reinforce a fixed mindset. So a growth mindset really comes from focusing on the process, on the effort. From a teacher's point of view, if you're teaching a martial arts class, the way that you can foster more of a growth mindset in your class is by praising effort and not outcomes. Now, this sounds obvious, But I think this is actually one of the things that we do badly as a peoples all the time. This, as well as praising people's appearances, like it's definitely not something that I am perfect at, but something that I notice a lot and that I think we can really improve upon. So like, for example, with appearance, Saying to somebody, oh, wow, you've really lost weight is about the outcome. You didn't, if you see somebody like eating a salad, this is a bad example possibly, but if you see someone who you know is trying to lose weight because their doctor has told them they need to lose weight for their health and you see them eating a salad and you know they don't like eating salad, you could be like, good job. I see you eating a salad there. Like that's super healthy. That's awesome. Like you're really putting in the work to look after your health. Good job. But we don't do that. Like, in fact, we would almost feel like we're patronizing someone to be like, well done, you're eating a salad. But what we say we wait for instead is for them to have physically achieved the outcome to have lost the weight. And then we go, oh my God, you've lost weight. You look great. But you don't know that person might have been bulimic to achieve that. They might have stopped eating. They might be over-exercising. They might be stressed. They might have a disease. They might have cancer. 
there can be so many reasons why somebody is losing weight that just does not warrant our praise. But we are very visual creatures and we can empathize and I understand and I'm guilty too. If you look at someone, you see they've lost weight and straight away your brain, your mouth just goes, oh, wow, you've lost weight. You look great. Uh, that's really hurtful because of what I just outlined and also because it says well, right now that you've lost weight, you're good. But if you gain the weight, that implies that you're going to be bad. And I've been directly impacted by this. We tend to celebrate people's outcomes rather than their effort, right? At the same time, for example, in a martial arts class, you know, you might say something like, we're learning a new technique and like a new person picks it up straight away. And the coach goes, you made that look effortless. Sounds like a real positive. But what it actually says is like, when you pick something up straight away, that's amazing. No one's saying like, wow, I can see you working really, really hard at what you're doing. In fact, like in that situation, as a teacher, if you have a student who picks something up really easily, the better thing to say is, oh, wow, that was too easy for you. We need to give you a harder challenge. Here it is. Something along those lines that doesn't tell people that the value comes from where they're at, not from putting in effort to be somewhere else. And remember, you put in effort to keep making mistakes. It takes a lot of effort because it bruises our ego to make mistakes. It's frustrating. It doesn't feel good to learn. So we need all of the praise um, and support that we can get from our training partners and especially from our coaches. We want them to be telling us, you know, well done for putting in the effort, not well done for the result. And in the long, long term, that's going to cause a culture of a club that has a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And you're going to end up with infinitely happier clients getting infinitely better outcomes in tournaments, whatever your, so, you know, whatever your motivation for being a martial arts instructor is, I think there's a lot of benefit to be derived from doing something like that. Um, you know, additional suggestions for ways that you might reframe some things that you possibly, you know, already saying is maybe when someone's not getting something yet, like they they don't they don't have the specific skills that are needed for improvement just yet. You can say like, okay, here are some strategies for helping figure this out. You don't just spoon feed them directly the answer because, again, that's not going to give them the space to make errors and that's not going to lead to them changing their mindset from being a fixed to a growth mindset. So you can say, you know, if you see someone having a hard time, you can say, like, what parts of this are feeling most difficult for you right now? Let's see if we can address those. Or maybe when they are making progress, you know, really saying, do you see how much progress you've made? Like how much you're improving, not how good, not look how good you are, see how much progress you've made. Or like, I can see you put in so much effort to get to where you are now. Like that's fantastic or something along those kind of lines. 
What about if they like are putting in lots of effort and they're still not getting the outcome? Well, you might mention something like this and say, do you know that like the fact that you're putting in effort and making all these mistakes means that you're learning, you just haven't expressed it yet as the skill in the way that you want to see it. But if you keep going, it's going to be there and it's going to be very strongly consolidated, right? You might say like, I really admire your persistence and I appreciate your mental effort and it's going to pay off something like that. Um, If you see someone who excels really early on and you want to help them keep having a growth mindset, not be that person who has like quote unquote natural ability and then they taper off because everything seems easy to them. Like how do you keep challenging that person? You could say something like, I know you've got the ability to learn this. And so I'm going to set the bar really high for you. We're going to do some harder um, exercises or If you start to get frustrated, be sure to communicate with me about your progress so I can provide support to you. I'm confident you can learn this with the right support. That's like, all right, I've said this really crazy thing, but like I'm going to be here to back you. And some of that also comes back to attachment theory, which um, we'll possibly talk about on another podcast. You can also say, you know, what we're doing in class today isn't being graded. This isn't part of a grading And so making mistakes is encouraged. It's a good thing, right? All all things along those lines, but really looking at encouraging making mistakes, encouraging effort, and never saying things like, oh, wow, like you're you're getting really good at this or, or like you're good at this. Or if someone does something really easily, just being like, oh, my God, wow, you're so gifted. Things like that can be... (laughs) really quite hurtful in the long run to somebody's growth versus fixed mindset. Your attitude is also really important. So how you talk about yourself as a past competitor or current competitor as a teacher is really going to rub off on your students. So if you have a growth mindset, your students will have a growth mindset. We've already really touched on this. So you can assess your mindset. Again, go to Carol Dweck's website, assess it, see where it's at, see where you need to make changes, and then see if you can deliberately interject language about yourself that reflects more growth mindset than fixed mindset. You know, say things like, I'm, I've been really trying to do this thing. I've been working really hard, especially as, say, a black belt or a really advanced martial arts practitioner. A lot of people see you doing things quote unquote, effortlessly. And they think that's how it's supposed to be. You know, they don't see all the hard work. So really talking about like, I still have to work so hard to maintain this. Um, I worked so hard to get to this point. And even now it takes a lot to keep it going. Um, Like I've always really valued putting in a lot of effort or I wasn't a naturally gifted martial artist in the beginning. You can say, You know, when I first started, I couldn't even touch my toes. All things like that are really helpful in encouraging the rest of the community, the rest of the school to have a growth mindset. And the last thing you can do is notice the student language as well. So apart from your language and the things that you say to people, you can correct your students when they say, I can't do it. I'm never going to be able to do it. You can't do it yet. And even if that seems really annoying to them, it 
totally rubs off and eventually it makes a big, big difference, right? Like there have been studies looking at schools where they tried to shift people from fixed to growth mindset and in one school, it was a big school, 67% of students who had a fixed mindset switched over to a growth mindset. And that translated to anywhere between a 50 to 70%, depending on what marking system you looked at. They looked at a couple of different measures of intelligence um, improvement, right? Because people had a growth mindset. So you can foster a growth mindset. You can foster this friendly relationship with mistakes in your club as a coach. And the exact same things apply in the trauma-informed space. So today we've spoken about neuroplasticity, we've spoken about learning, what learning is, and the five characteristics of learning being improvement, consistency, stability, persistence, and adaptability. We spoke about how you can cause learning by making errors, by challenging your balance system, by having a growth mindset instead of a fixed mindset and strategies for doing that, all related towards celebrating making mistakes, celebrating putting in effort rather than outcomes. Um, Really good resources for all of this information is through Carol Dweck, through her website, which is in the show notes, and also through the Huberman Lab podcast. Like I said, some of the stuff about linking neuroplasticity um, with mistakes and possibly martial arts therapy is all hypothetical. But I really hope that somebody out there is going to do some research studies looking at this in the future. The Huberman Lab podcast is a really excellent resource. So I do want to say just one thing uh, before you go and listen to it. If you do suffer from anxiety or PTSD, there's one strategy that he speaks about that I feel a bit more iffy about. I'd love to talk to him about this. And it's a concept called the physiological sigh. It's essentially two inhales and one exhale. And there's lots of um, literature about it being a good way to kind of reset the stress response. And therefore, he mentions it in the episode that I alluded to, episode seven, and then in much more detail in his episodes about stress as being a strategy that you can use to calm yourself down. Now, there wasn't that I could find any research looking at using this strategy in clients with PTSD. Um, There was one study looking at persons who either had high anxiety on the anxiety sensitivity index or low and showed that um, it might have been like a useful tool for people who had self-reported high anxiety. Um, And keeping in mind that that index really just looks at how scared of anxiety they are, but they specifically excluded in that study persons with psychiatric diseases or PTSD and and there's a possible link between sighing and panic disorders. And what I'm alluding to here is that the inhale when you breathe is sympathetic and the exhale is parasympathetic. So the idea behind breathing strategies like the parasympathetic, ah, sorry, like the physiological sigh where you do this short two quick inhales and then a long exhale where the exhale is longer than the inhale theoretically work. And I think work a lot of the time for a lot of people, but just be aware that they can be triggering because that's a double activation of your sympathetic nervous system. I would assume 
before you do the exhale. Certainly just breath work in general can be triggering for people if they struggle to notice the inhale and things like blowing bubbles, feeling the temperature of the air as you blow it out, being warm, really focusing on the exhale and almost passively inhaling can be really useful for people who do feel triggered, who do feel that that inhale reminds them of an excitement of their sympathetic nervous system. I don't mean uh, excitement in a positive way. I just mean excitement in as in like an activation of their fight or flight response. So I personally don't cue a lot of breathing in, in classes for that reason. And I think that if you listen to this podcast, I just want to give a heads up to say, if you feel like breathwork has been triggering for you in the past and you want to explore the physiological side, it might be best to do that in therapy. Say to your psychologist, I listened to this podcast. I heard about this thing. I think it might be good for me. Can we try it together? Um, and I think that that's a, going to be a bit more of a safer way to go about trying that out. But otherwise, the other thing that he mentions in the episode when he does briefly mention how to calm the stress response is to open up your visual field to encompass everything. So typically when we get stressed, we go to tunnel vision and we just look at one small point. And if you try and open up your peripheral vision and try and see kind of everything in your, you're not going to see 360 degrees, but however many degrees field of vision we have in front of us, see as much as you can that that can be quite calming. And I think that that is probably generally more safe. But again, if you're not sure about trying some of these strategies, trying them with your therapist um, or with a friend or someone nearby or a loved one who can help you if you do feel triggered by trying them is important, right? We're all human beings and all different grounding strategies and different ways of calming our nervous system are going to work differently for all of us. No, that's just my aside on that. Otherwise, I think it's a fantastic podcast. Like I'm not saying this to try and scare you away. I definitely recommend listening to it. I think learning the mechanism behind how our brain works is super, super helpful in thinking about how we can really target interventions for ourselves as individuals as we all have very different goals and physiology and genetics um, and lives. So that's the end of today's episode. I hope you learned something about making mistakes and that this episode has caused you to want to run out into the world and go and make some mistakes provided that they are safe. Um, we should also mention that um, don't try and make mistakes a lot in sparring, full contact striking. You never want to risk the health of your brain. Uh, so be smart when you think about the kinds of mistakes that you want to make, make sure that making a mistake is not going to be damaging to you. Otherwise, Go for your life, go make some mistakes, be happy about doing it. And I hope that you have really great outcomes in terms of your learning, in terms of your emotional development, in terms of your therapeutic outcomes, in terms of outcomes for your clients or why ever the hell you are listening to this podcast. Um, and I'm so grateful for you to spending for spending this amount of time listening to me blammer on. I hope it was useful and I really love some feedback about whether or not this format is good or bad or you know whether there's things that I can do differently or whether people prefer me having guests or you want me to do a mix I'm not sure I would love feedback about that please message me on Instagram Facebook comment on YouTube um, leave a review on Apple and put the feedback in the review whatever um, email me 
however you want to get in contact with me. <laughs> that That is amazing. I would love that. And until next time, have a fantastic day or night. Have you thought of something to be grateful for today? What was it? I'm grateful for the amazing women that train with me at the Fight Back Project. I'm grateful for Nari and the beautiful song Shape Me heard at the beginning and end of every episode. And I'm grateful for you for listening to this show and helping martial arts keep saving lives. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you'd like to leave me a review to help more people find the show, that's a bonus. You need to know that nobody shapes me but me. Don't gotta tell you what my name is, I don't gotta explain it. Walk in the room, hear a boom erupting like I'm famous. I'm here shedding shells, I'm shameless. Half in nothing, no complacence. Walk to many tight ropes with no hope, so I became this poster. They hold over all the heads of trauma holders. You don't need to know my history, I move boulders. Atlas shrug, cause I lifted the weight above his shoulders. No pretense of defense, move first like chess soldiers. This goes deeper than empowerment, cause... I'm the one that power it. Physical meets mental challenge me to keep devouring. If I can't change the scenery, at least I change perspectives. No longer isolated, but elevated and selective. Darkest places become beautiful spaces. This is where rage meets patience. Meets power meets gracious. Meets, we're so glad you came in. The feeling is contagious. When you the walking impact of intended bad intentions. When you the manifesting of collecting all they tensions. You the soul and body hold it all and still remember. But I'm a work in progress, testament to all contenders. Forgot what it was like to have control over self. Forgot what it was like to be the one in charge. Forgot in my reflection, I can see all my wealth. Forgot that with my bare hands, I break all these bars, barriers, and obstacles. They can't cage me. They can't chronicle all my experiences and reduce them to appearances when i was truly beaten gave myself clearances to fall down mess up and get myself back up i'm not looking for clovers because i don't believe in luck damn you were badass i heard them say it clearly why thank you very much i know now i'm not weary of what's next for me because i expect to see growth like i was planted watered fed and bloomed to be the positivity and accountability Knowing they won't step if I'm the agent of my agency I think I found my voice again, huh? I think I found my voice again, huh? I 
I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry, you're the end where I begin Boundaries, I know them well, take a breath and meditate Who is she? I know her well, now I get to open gates One, two, one, two, I don't need your permission And if you get uncomfortable, then use your intuition To know that I won't stay where respect is ever missing And everything I do, that's me making decisions It's truly underrated, the value of self-worth Forgot that I was rich from the moment of my birth A penny for my thoughts, no really, you can't afford it You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, hold record it You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, hold record it, huh?